is a place where they'll pay you a thousand dollars for a kiss and fifty cents for your soul. Welcome to Holly Weird, a podcast about celebrity deaths and the strange events in Tinseltown and beyond. We are your hosts, Megan Carpenter and Liz Shire. Here are today's headlines. Two big stories tonight. Breaking story out of the Bahamas tonight. Singer-actress Aaliyah is killed in a plane crash. People across the country are mourning the death of Aaliyah. The death of singer Aaliyah is still making headlines around the country. Authorities have confirmed that R&B singer and actress Aaliyah is among eight people killed in a plane crash. She died in a plane crash last weekend. You'll recall in the Bahamas, eight others also died. Things are about to get Holly weird. This is the story of the death of Aaliyah. August 25th, 2001, Marsh Harbor, Bahamas. A quick trip to film a music video would end in tragedy for Aaliyah, the R&B pop star who was undeniably on the rise to superstardom. On that day, it would all literally come crashing down shortly after her plane took off at Marsh Harbor Airport. Aaliyah and eight others were killed that day. The star was only 22 years old. Four days before her death, Aaliyah appeared on BET's 106 in Park and revealed that she would begin shooting the video for her single, Rock the Boat, the very next day. August 22nd saw a preliminary shooting in Miami, Florida, and on August 23rd, Aaliyah and employees of the record company flew to the Bahamas on two flights using a Fairchild Metro 3 chartered through Sky Limo. She was scheduled to leave the Bahamas on August 26th, but chose to leave the day before since she had finished early. Video director Hype Williams recalled, Aaliyah left mid-production, so we were still shooting when she left. question is it normal to leave your music video set if they're not done with the music video i wouldn't know (laughs) well i think she was done with her own principal photography like her own shots and then they just you know got those dancers dancing in the green screen on the water so like she doesn't need to be there for them shooting some coconuts and trees no she was too big of a star yes we could let me call Brittany real quick (laughs) i'll find out Aaliyah and her entourage were eager to return to the United States. They made the decision to leave immediately. The aircraft designated for the return flight was smaller than the one which they had originally arrived, but accommodated the whole party and all of their equipment. The group boarded a twin-engine Cessna 402B at the Marsh Harbor Airport on the Abico Islands for their return trip back to the Opelaka Airport in Florida. The passengers had grown impatient because the Cessna was supposed to arrive at 4.30 p.m., but did not arrive until 6.15 p.m. Pilot Luis Morales was overheard arguing with the passengers prior to takeoff. It was reported that Morales warned them that there was too much weight for a quote-unquote safe flight. 
Trying to convince the passengers that the plane was overloaded, Morales gave in to the group and immediately had trouble starting one of the engines. Hi. So I feel like if you were overhearing this argument, like how do you just bite your tongue on this one? Like, no guys, listen to the pilot who says the plane is too heavy. Like none of them had their pilot license as far as I know. Like why would you even try? You had one job, dude. <laughs> one job. Upon takeoff, the plane rose little more than 40 feet, banked left, then nosedived into a marsh and burst into flame. The crash scene was about 200 feet away from the runway. Alia and the eight others on board, pilot Luis Morales III, hairstylist Eric Foreman and Anthony Dodd, Security guard Scott Gallen, family friend Keith Wallace, makeup artist Christopher Maldonado, and Blackground Records employees Douglas Kratz and Gina Smith were killed. Gallen, Aaliyah's bodyguard, survived the initial impact and, according to paramedics, spent his last moments worrying about Aaliyah's condition. It was reported that two others initially survived the impact. Aaliyah was not one of them. The pilot who overheard Morales' argument with the passengers, Lewis Key, suggested that engine failure, along with overloading of the aircraft, could have caused the crash. He recalled that others had seen the plane experience an engine failure on takeoff. One witness believed that no one could have survived the accident because of the crash intensity and the fact that the aircraft had disintegrated upon impact. Key also recalled the condition of the bodies, it was an awful sight. Some bodies were so badly disfigured you couldn't identify them, and two guys were alive, one screaming and screaming for help. He was horribly burned all over. When emergency teams arrived at the muddy scene minutes later, they found Alia some 20 feet from the fuselage, curled on her left side. According to the findings of an inquest conducted by the coroner's office in the Bahamas, Aliyah suffered from severe burns and a blow to the head, in addition to severe shock and a weak heart. The coroner theorized that she went into such a state of shock that even if she had survived the crash, her recovery would have been nearly impossible. The bodies, some of them badly burned, were taken to the morgue at Princess Margaret Hospital in Nassau, where they remained until relatives made positive identification. The subsequent investigation determined that when the aircraft attempted to depart, it was over its maximum takeoff weight by 700 pounds and had one more passenger than it was certified to carry. So Liz, that was 700 pounds overweight, one more passenger than it was certified to carry. When we were researching this, some news outlets commented that Elia had a 300 pound bodyguard and they kind of said it. Uh, it was a little bit body shamey. Yeah. So I also feel like who wants a 95 pound bodyguard? <laughs> Very true. I mean... Fat shaming this poor man who was just doing his job, not cool. Also, there are pictures of him out there and he looks like 300 pounds of muscle, for sure. Yes, not fat, muscle. <laughs> the report stated that, quote, 
the airplane was seen lifting off the runway and then nose down, impacting in a marsh on the south side of the departure end of runway 27 and then exploding into flames. It also indicated that the pilot was not approved to fly the aircraft. Morales had falsely obtained his FAA license by showing logs of hundreds of flight hours he had never flown. He may have also falsified the number of hours he had flown to get the job with his employer, Black Hawk International Airways. Additionally, Morales' toxicology report revealed traces of cocaine and alcohol in his system. The United States joined the investigation on August 27th as authorities from the Federal Aviation Administration arrived in the Bahamas. On August 31st, the day of Aliyah's funeral, an independent expert of the Cessna Pilots Association reported that the aircraft was overloaded. His statement came as investigators declined to comment on the weight being a factor in the crash. Black Hawk International Airways came under scrutiny by the FAA. The FAA reported Black Hawk had authorization for limited use of the aircraft, but not to the extent that it could be chartered and flown by Morales. In the three years prior to the crash, Black Hawk was cited four times for violations. It received a warning for not testing employees for drugs in 1999 and was cited in 2000 for failing to comply with maintenance standards. Meg, do you have any fears of flying? Not particularly. Not really. How about you? Are you afraid to fly? Generally, no. Um, but I did have one scary flight from Rome to Paris once on a tiny plane from a tiny airline called Ryanair. It's the budget airline. Um, and this ride was budget. But my fear was not budget because we, the landing was bumpy. Extremely bumpy. That was the only time I ever felt afraid. I mean, I've never had a flight where... The staff of the flight, <laughs> the employees of the airline look afraid. I the, feel like that's your, that's your telltale. Definitely. Yeah. These people didn't look afraid, but I was afraid. <laughs> Very afraid. <laughs> After the crash, revelations came to light concerning pilot Luis Morales's private life, as well as his activities during the final month before the crash. Following the accident, authorities told his relatives not to discuss the case. However, Morales' sister spoke on behalf of the family, stating confidence that her brother would be cleared of any accusations of wrongdoing. Less than a month before the crash, Morales had been caught with pieces of crack cocaine in his car after being pulled over for driving his car through a stop sign on August 7th, 2001. Crack is whack. Crack is cheap. The Associated Press, the Palm Beach Post, and other news outlets reported allegations that Morales had been sentenced to probation on August 13, 2001. On August 28, 2001, U.S. aviation officials said that Morales had been hired by Black Hawk International Airways just two days before the crash and was not authorized by the FAA to fly the aircraft for the operator. On August 28th, Aliyah's remains were transported from the Bahamas back to the United States. Over 100 people waited outside the funeral home in Nassau as four men lifted her coffin into a hearse. It was then taken to the Nassau airport where a private jet waited to return the body to Newark International Airport in Newark, New Jersey. 
Alia's family was staying at the Trump International Hotel when her body was returned. Staff reported flowers and condolences had been sent steadily since her death. A worker at the reception desk disclosed that at least 500 bouquets, delivered mostly by grieving fans, had arrived for the family in the three days between the crash and the return of her body. Alia's private funeral services were held on August 31st, 2001 in Manhattan. Her body was set in a silver pleated casket, which was carried in a horse-drawn glass hearse. An estimated 800 mourners were in attendance at the procession. Among those in attendance were Missy Elliott, Timbaland, Gladys Knight, Gladys Knight, who is actually Aaliyah's aunt, Lil' Kim, and Sean Combs. After the service, 22 white doves were released to symbolize each year of her life. Aaliyah was initially interred at Ferncliff Cemetery in Hartsdale, New York. The inscription, Baby Girl, appears on Aaliyah's crypt. Her father, Michael, who died 11 years later in 2012 at the age of 61, is interred in the crypt directly above her. The inscription at the bottom of Aaliyah's portrait at the funeral read, We were given a queen, we were given an angel. Oh man, I have all the chills right now. Agreed. Reactions to Aaliyah's death were monumental. Fans in New York were grieving. Aaliyah had spent the first five years of her life there before relocating to Detroit. Quincy Jones told the Associated Press that he was devastated by her death. Quincy's daughter, Kideda, was close friends with Aaliyah. Beyonce praised her good nature and stated, She was one of the first celebrities we met. She was so nice. We went out, we hung out with her, and it's really sad, and we're just trying to be strong. Damon Dash, with whom Aaliyah was romantically linked at the time of her death, said he was, quote, crushed and heartbroken over the loss of such a beautiful and talented woman whom I loved deeply and meant the world to me. Damon Dash. We'll get to him later. Following Alia's death, there was a large increase in the sales of her music. In particular, her self-titled third album, which had been released only a month before. The album was already a success. It debuted at number two on the Billboard 200. It was already certified gold when she departed for the Bahamas. Having also made the jump to film with Romeo Must Die and Queen of the Damned, Aaliyah was working on several film appearances to be released back to back. One of these was the Whitney Houston helmed Sparkle. Houston shelved the project in response to Aaliyah's passing, but it was later completed in 2011 with Jordan Sparks portraying the role that was at one time Aaliyah's. Whitney Houston, writing that one down in my Hollyweird Ideas journal. Okay, continue. She had filmed part of her role in The Matrix Reloaded and was scheduled to appear in its sequel, The Matrix Revolutions. The role was recast. Other films were also on deck, including Honey. Honey? Like Jessica Alba Honey? That's right. That would have been so good. That would have been so fucking good. It's truly a loss. So there you have it, the story of the death of Aaliyah. But before we go post-mortem, 
let's rewind and give some more insight into the making of an R&B icon. Aliyah Dana Houghton was born on January 16, 1979 in Brooklyn, New York. She was the younger child of Diane and Michael Houghton. Her name is of Arabic and Jewish origins, meaning the highest, most exalted one, the best. Her parents decided on the name based on the high hopes and expectations they would have if they had a daughter. I'm not crying, you're crying. Her family moved to Detroit when she was a young girl. Aliyah's mother was a vocalist, and her uncle, Barry Hankerson, was an entertainment lawyer who had been married to Gladys Knight. She went on to appear on Star Search at the age of 10. Aliyah chose to begin auditioning while her mother made the decision to have her surname dropped. She auditioned for several record labels and at age 11 appeared in concerts alongside Knight. Aliyah's uncle ended up signing her to a deal with Blackground Records at the age of 12. She was then introduced to R. Kelly. We'll get to that later, too. R. Kelly, who became the lead producer on her first album, that album, Age Ain't Nothing But a Number, was recorded when she was only 14. Released in 1994, the album received commercial and critical success. Two years later, Aliyah signed with Atlantic Records, where she worked with Timberland and Missy Elliott on her second record, One in a Million. That album also went multi-platinum, and Timbaland and Elliot would become frequent Aliyah collaborators. Her first film role came with 1999's Romeo Must Die opposite Jet Li. Her contribution to the film's soundtrack, a song called Try Again, became one of her biggest hits, selling over a million copies, topping the Billboard 100, and earning her MTV Video Music Awards and a Grammy nomination. Remember, this was when those MTV awards were a big deal, not just an excuse for celebrities to drink gin and tonics while watching the show. <laughs> Aliyah released her self-titled album, Aliyah, in July 2001. A posthumous compilation album, I Care For You, was released in 2002. It's time for Hollyweird Post-Mortem. It's time for a Holly Weird postmortem. Aliyah. We're huge Aliyah fans, and I mean, that's kind of why we decided to talk about her this episode. But beyond that, she's so highly revered in the music industry. Years and years after her passing, we want to tackle why. Here's our best shot. One of the first thoughts that we had is her image. There was an obvious, deliberate focus on her public image. Yeah, so originally, so back in the 90s, she wore those baggy clothes. She wore her hair over one eye, like you said. Her mom suggested this to her to look like Veronica Lake, and Ooh. that look became her signature. Uh, but she reinvented herself in just the few short years that we had her as an artist, because when you think of... Um, the early 2000s, she was kind of more, she was sexier and she was yes, glamorous definitely. as opposed to the baggy clothes that she originally wore back in the mid-90s. Right. Um, but regardless, her her fashion and her style was highly revered, um, even by the likes of Tommy Hilfiger, who, who asked her to model uh, 
in some of his ads. Um, these ads, she was dressed in boxer shorts, baggy jeans, a tube top. I think you're envisioning exactly what I'm describing because these are iconic looks to this day. Absolutely. I think another reason why she's highly revered still in the music industry is she only had three albums, all of which were awesome. I mean, her discography is spotless in that sense. Absolutely. We uh, we ended on a teenage dream and we never had to suffer through a witness. Wow. Awesome. <laughs> that is very accurate. <laughs> but think of all the songs that she had, too. I mean, Are You That Somebody from 96. My personal fave. Mm. My personal favorite Alia's song is We Need a Resolution from uh, one of her later albums. But uh, do you want to actually tell the story of how you knew that we needed to do an Alia episode? Yeah, we had uh, we were halfway through our first episode trying to pick the next episode. And I walked into the hair salon and Are You That Somebody, which is my personal favorite song, came on. And I was a sign. I knew we had to do Aaliyah. I got a very enthusiastic text from you that it was it was a sign. Well, we had... I had the tinfoil in my hand. <laughs> I had to text Megan Teller. <laughs> so at the time of Aaliyah's death, there was a lot of talk of how she was in the process of crossing over from just an R&B artist to a mainstream triple threat. She had been acting in movies, singing, and she was really at the, like on the cusp of being a major star. Um... I personally think that Alia paved the way for Beyonce. Their paths are extremely similar. They started their careers out really young. They both had kind of like overbearing fathers as their managers. Because okay. there was definitely some contention with Aaliyah's relationship with R. Kelly um, that her dad got involved. And, you know, both Alia's early work and Destiny's Child early work had that same kind of um, soft voice R&B sound. It wasn't very, like, now Beyonce is really known for her, like, very bold, really talented vocals. But back then it was very, like, laid back. Kind of like Escape, that kind of, like, you know, late yeah. 90s, early 2000s feel. Um, and if you, like, listen back, I think their vocal styles really match. So interesting talk, Liz. <laughs> so if you think her movies and her crossover career, I mean, in terms of the path that you're suggesting Beyonce followed, so Romeo Must Die, she is the um, the female half of the relationship uh, the, to the Romeo. She's the Juliet to the Romeo. <laughs> um, so Beyonce's first film role was that Austin Powers movie where she was the... Uh, the Bond girl, I guess, yeah. to Austin Powers yeah. and the other half. And then, so if you think what Beyonce did in Dreamgirls, I mean, that's a, what uh, Aaliyah could have done in Sparkle. I mean, right. it's all there. Very parallel, for sure. And I think that Beyonce, she always speaks very highly of Aaliyah, and I think she recognizes that, that they were coming up at the same time, and one star faded out before the other. That's sad. I know. That's so sad! <laughs> So there are a lot of uh, celebrities, not just in music, but also in pop culture that reference Aaliyah that are honestly obsessed with her. Drake has a tattoo of Aaliyah on his back. It's her face tattooed on his back. I was just uh, listening. But they don't, they don't know each other. No. They never met. No. no I mean, I guess he was a kid. Is he like our age? How old is Drake? Drake is 31. Drake is older than us listeners. We're young. <laughs> <laughs> We're younger than 31. 
My theory is that Drake, so Drake is 31 currently at the time of this recording. <laughs> he was 15 when Aaliyah died. So I think that his, like, his uh, respect for her as admiration. a musician, his admiration for her as a musician goes back to when her music was popular. Drake was, like, a young teenager kind of developing his musical self, his, like, personality. And I think that probably got really ingrained in yeah, who he, he is was as a, a musician. Yeah, so she was popular, and her tragedy occurred at a time when he was super impressionable? Definitely. Okay. Yeah, so he... Do you remember a few years back when he announced that he was putting together a posthumous album of Aliyah recordings? Right. That never came together. Right. (laughs) I think her family put the kibosh on Oh, really? Yeah, it was something with, like, legal. Legal. Yeah. Mm. There's also... If we wanted to think about an analogy to ourselves, Meg, what kind of music did you listen to when you were, like, 15? Um, I, I would like to think of myself as an alt-rocker, black eyelinered punk girl. Right. But there were, there was, that was probably sprinkled with Backstreet Boys. Right. So if you were ever to release an <laughs> album, it'd be a mix of both. Yeah. Yeah, you're right. There would be shout-outs to, to Green Day and Nick Carter. <sighs> what a lovely combination. <laughs> Other celebrities, The Weeknd has sampled her. So The Weeknd is a very current artist. So mm-hmm. when you think she has staying power that uh, a decade plus, I mean, we're talking at least 15 years later, you have artists sampling her. Chris Brown song with her or am I imagining that? I don't listen to Chris Brown. <laughs> <laughs> uh, team, team Rihanna? Team Bad Gal Riri? Okay, Team Riri all the way. <laughs> um, even, yeah, it's a lot of people sample her and cite her as a source of inspiration. Even JoJo, who had an album out recently, she did a live show where she pointed out that she was on Black, she started on Black Brown Records oh. at the same age that Leah did and she's covered um, Are You That Somebody and uh, one in a million. I've been holding back this secret from you. I probably shouldn't let you, but if I let this go, boy, I'm gonna watch my back. I'm gonna say anybody. Is it my girl? Is it your girl? And cited Aaliyah as like a source of inspiration and confidence, which a lot of young women talk about, whether they're artists or just normal fans that she had a message of self-respect and independence that a lot of women cite as very important in growing up. Yeah, she did seem, Aliyah, she seemed mature for her years. Right. I mean, AJ, nothing but a number, baby. Am I right? (laughs) So a big part of who we understand Aliyah to be today, posthumously, is this mysterious persona. She had her hair over one eye. She never really talked about her relationships or her personal life. Uh, what contributed to this, I think, is the last film role that she had in Queen of the Damned. She had finished principal photography, but she had never um, gotten able to talk about the movie. And her brother had to perform ADR afterward uh, because she wasn't completely done. So can you just say what ADR stands for? Oh, ADR stands for Automated Dialogue Replacement. And we're going to act like we didn't just pause the recording so Liz could look that up. Her brother had to dub his voice in place of hers. Go. Yes. Um, 
so because it's this like kind of spooky, kind of goofy vampire movie that she never got to talk about, I think it contributes to the rest of her mysterious persona. It was her last role. It was kind of weird. Yeah, I never thought about that. So the last taste of Alia we got, she was a crazy, creepy vampire. Is a, that a sexy, crazy, creepy vampire? <laughs> yes, very sexy. She spends a lot of the movie like thrusting her hips around and like showing her vampire teeth and speaking in kind of a strange accent. It's not a great movie, <laughs> which is a shame. But I think she kind of went out on a limb when she did that, and that was kind of more contributing to her crossover career. Yes. So that was a side of her that we had not yet experienced and it was kind of a, a mysterious one. So Yeah, and it's I think it still rings true for people. That is just a question mark. A question mark in her persona. I know Leah said um on an interview of on the set of Queen of the Damned, um, she had a quote about darkness. I think everyone has a bit of a fascination with the dark side. And um, it's fun to go to the movies and escape and, and really get deep into the whole fantastical characters. And um, I myself have always loved the dark side as well. So I think it's something that everyone secretly longs for and wants. So there's a big, another big question mark. Several question marks. But one of the biggest is a man named Robert Kelly. R. Period. Kelly. So R. Kelly and Aaliyah were actually married on July 31st, 1994, when he was 27 and she was 15. Ew. Uh, it was right. The marriage was quickly annulled. Uh, and Aaliyah never publicly admitted to the press that she had ever been in a relationship or been married to Kelly. Documentation surfaced uh, that in 1997... Aaliyah moved to have all records of her marriage to Kelly expunged because she was not old enough to give consent at the time of her happy union to her then producer. So, did she realize that that was manipulation and disgusting? Or, like, how did she snap out of that? I think that's what it sounded like. Well, I think her dad, when she was married and they got annulled, her parents found out about it and that's when the annulment occurred. Um, and then after that, Aaliyah never worked with R. Kelly again and ceased all contact with him. When she was still alive, Aaliyah was asked about her relationship with Kelly, and she told people not to believe all the mess, and she and Kelly were close, and people took it the wrong way. Took a marriage certificate the wrong way? I, I guess so. So R. Kelly, for his part, has been extremely vague about what happened between him and Aaliyah. Uh, he's never confirmed or denied their relationship. However, uh, in comparison to the legal issues that have plagued him since her death, which has been his sex tape with an underage girl, and more recently, accusations that he's the leader of a sex cult. Have right. about this? Yes, I saw the interview of the girl on Wendy Williams. Oh, I missed that. Look that up. Ooh. Oh, it wasn't Wendy Williams. It was maybe the talk... The talk? I don't know. I love the talk. <laughs> um, it's this crazy um, story. No, what was that? What's that show where Adrian Bailon is a talk? talks? Oh, real? No. Real talk. Real talk. Real talk. Um, <laughs> it was featured on Real Talk <laughs> that the families of these women are claiming that R. Kelly is the leader of a sex cult and he's forcing these women to live with him against their will. 
So it's little wonder that uh, this like short lived creepy relationship has been forgotten considering all the stuff that R. Kelly's done since. I mean, then. I don't know that it's been forgotten. It's just people have enough respect for Aaliyah to leave his name out of it. Yeah, definitely. Trapped in the Closet, parts 1 through 33. He looks at the closet. So, beyond Robert Kelly, um, Alia had another romantic endeavor with Damon Dash. So, Damon uh, was Jay-Z's counterpart in Rockefeller Records. Mm -hmm. So, word on the street is that he, Damon, and Jay-Z actually competed over the affection of Aaliyah. Ooh. Juicy, do tell. <laughs> so, um, she picked Damon. Okay, so some believe that that led to the dissolution of Rockefeller Records um, oh. as a company. So, Aaliyah and Damon, it's... I've, I read that they were engaged. I read that they were just in a relationship. Either way, um... Whatever. They were together. Yeah. So, uh, if you're saying to yourself right now, Damon Dash, that name sounds familiar. I will tell you why that name is familiar. So, Damon Dash was married to Rachel Roy. Rachel Roy, Becky with the good hair, Rachel Roy. No. Yes. So, not just Aaliyah. I mean, it seems like Jay-Z and Damon Dash have a have the same taste in a couple women. Wow. Yeah. So that's interesting. That's very, um, that's almost like an Illuminati connection. (laughs) Um, All right. So Jay-Z is still, I think, fascinated with Aliyah. He references her in his song Glory. Um, There's a line about checking the weight of the plane. I don't know if that, yeah. I mean, that's a little distasteful, but I wasn't close with Aliyah, so I don't know. Maybe he feels like he would have had permission. (laughs) Ooh. (laughs) All right, so um, I need to disclaimer this with I worship the ground that Beyonce walks on as much as the next human. As do we all. (laughs) But I read some articles in researching this that argue that Beyonce might not be the queen bee we know her to be if Aliyah had never passed. Oh. You interested? Uh, please go on. <laughs> so we already talked about the, the connection with Damon Dash and Rachel Roy. So say Damon Dash and Aaliyah ended up together forever, there wouldn't have been a Rachel Roy. Therefore, no Becky with the good hair. Therefore, no lemonade, maybe, right? The circle continues. He <laughs> better call Becky with the good hair. But other than that, we just kind of talked about how we think Aliyah laid the groundwork for a successful R&B to pop crossover career like Beyonce um, has done so well. Uh, So would Aliyah have done it first? Would she have been the star? Not to say, I mean, that's kind of dumb to say that there wasn't enough room for everyone. (laughs) Maybe not. We, I guess, you know, we'll never know. I think that Aliyah was more on track she was more grounded in being an r&b singer whereas beyonce had been part of a group that destiny's child already gained like a lot of popularity within them within mainstream music that she was already projected for pop and then superstardom and world takeover i couldn't see Ali- alia doing something like that for i think for her she was much more of a like 
traditional musician, but then again, who knows where it would have gone. Yeah, I mean, but when you think of songs like Try Again, that had such crossover appeal. Definitely. I don't know. I mean, it's just, it's sad because it's just a question mark. I mean, this girl had all the pieces uh, for, uh, you know, to put together to make the right puzzle. And it's just sad. Very sad. Sorry, guys. We left you with a sad one this time. Want to let us know what you think about Aliyah, this podcast, or let us know which celebrity death you can't get over? Email your feedback to hollyweirdpodcast at gmail.com. Thank you for listening to this episode of Holly Weird. Follow us on Facebook at Holly Weird Podcast to stay current with show updates. And join us next time, homies, when we keep it rolling with the death of a Hollywood actress. What R. Kelly does, he loves to talk about all the nasty things that he does. <laughs> Trapped in the closet. <laughs> I put him over it. I have a clip of that. I have. Hold on. <laughs>